CF in Fresno and kpfa.org online. Please stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is Tuesday, June 14th, 2005. Oy vey, oy vey, what a week. Oh, at least there's no more Jackson distraction. Yes, I wonder what they'll come up with next. Yes, movie of the week, so that they don't have to bother with the news. Ah, I'm still poring over the Downing Street memo, this so-called smoking gun that the pundits are comparing to the Pentagon Papers. You know, the hit that brought Nixon to his knees. Apparently, all the pundits are hoping it will happen again, and this Downing Street memo will uh, do in the Bush regime, will have a regime change. (laughs) Not bloody likely. But keep your fingers crossed. One never know, do one, as Fat Swaller used to say. Yes, one never know, do one. Check out Democratic Congressman John Conyers. That's C-O-N-Y-E-R-S. Keep listening because he is the one who is leading the group here. He's calling on Bush to answer questions for a change. Wouldn't that be interesting, you know? How long can our administration just shrug off all these uh, crimes and misdemeanors? And when, I keep asking, when will the public finally get sick of the gross negligence and criminal carelessness of these bozos? Uh, As I say, I don't know what's more frightening, the cruelty or the incompetence. Uh, The truth is, that there are competent men and women working in our government. I even know some. This administration has made their jobs impossible. How did we get into such a snarl? Yes, snarl. What's my favorite line? Yes, oh, what a tangled web is wove by Karl Rove, who said that the United States, that is, our government, eventually does the right thing but not before doing all the wrong things first. I don't know if we can afford to run things that way anymore. Uh, uh, What is that? My new word, leadership by the worst men, society's worst citizens. That is cockistocracy. I've written that all over my apartment. Cockeyes. Cockistocracy. 
K-A-K-I-S-T-O-C-R-A-C-Y rule by arrogant idiots and tyrants, yes. In the early days of the Republic, uh, a first lady, Abigail Adams, yes, um, wife to John Adams, she said to John, quote, all men would be tyrants if they could. She's referring, of course, to it's that famous letter in which she tells him to remember the ladies. He says, oh, good Lord, you know, that's the biggest tribe of all. For heaven's sakes, I have enough trouble. Anyway, uh, she meant it. Uh, and, of course, we know today in the 21st century that only by balancing power within the federal system will this executive branch be brought back to reason. Uh Absolute power is always fatal. So, we see that the 2006 election is crucial. Uh, I, I know that most of my friends despair of electoral politics, but I do so admire the people who are still willing to struggle and uh, really get busy and do the grassroots work. Yes, all politics is local. Well, Actually, there's some rumblings in Washington. Ted Kennedy uh, struggled to give a fiery speech in the Senate. Uh, he's so old now. I, I think of him. He looks like some of the ancient Irish dudes in my family. And he is struggling. He is trying. Uh, even older is the uh, antiquated Senator Robert Byrd, uh, the Democrat from West Virginia, I want to read you something that um, he wrote because it is so important for us to remember, yes, that Hitler's originality, this is Robert Byrd, Democrat, West Virginia, Hitler's originality lay in his realization that effective revolutions in modern conditions are carried out with, not against, the power of the state. The correct order of events was first to secure access to that power and then begin his revolution. Hitler never abandoned the cloak of legality. He recognized the enormous psychological value of having the law on his side. Instead, he turned the law inside out and made illegality legal. It's it's a neat trick, folks. Uh, you know, get it in writing. It's so interesting. Uh, Martin Luther King wrote so many things about just and unjust laws. Uh, you can make the laws mean damn near anything you like. Uh, the big issue, of course, every time I turn on the uh, C-SPAN or uh, any of the uh, radio news is the exit strategy in Iraq, my own guess is that uh, the administration plans to exit through Iran. I hope to God I'm wrong. Uh, Hillary Clinton is interesting. Uh, what she says on the subject, I'm fascinated here. Uh, actually, I'm afraid, uh, well, of course, Hillary should know better than I. I'm not a politician. But um, she was asked by Judy Woodruff, uh, a specific question, um, let's see, about Iraq. Judy Woodruff asked Hillary Clinton, uh, record numbers of Americans continue to die in Iraq. No end to the violence in sight that most people can see. 
When should the United States begin significant troop withdrawals? And um, Hillary's answer is, quote, You know, I am not one who feels comfortable setting exit strategies. We don't know what we're exiting from. We don't know what the situation is moving toward. How do we know where we're headed when we don't know where we are? Now, um, as I say, that's the sort of answer that uh, seems to me completely rational. Uh, but um, Ariana Huffington thinks that Hillary is uh, not just self-righteous, but, uh, well, here's what uh, Ariana Huffington says about uh, Hillary's remarks. She says, <laughs> she says, Hillary reacted like a vampire being shown a cross or an ABC executive seeing the ratings for their Trump TV movie. She offered up the following head scratcher. And then they quote this line about uh, how do we know where we're headed when we don't know where we are. And then Ariana Huffington goes on to say, oh, wow, very existential, very Zen Cohen. If a foreign policy disintegrates in the desert and no one hears it fail, what does this mean for our country and for our safety? <laughs> you hear that, says Ariana Huffington. It's the sound of one Greek gagging. Ariana Huffington is Greek. Senator Clinton, she says, if you are not comfortable setting exit strategies, can you direct us to someone who is? Because our soldiers are dying every day waiting for someone who is comfortable setting an exit strategy. Okay, uh, Ariana goes on to say, and I'm certainly in sympathy with her, she goes on to say, I've just decided that I do have a litmus test for the 2008 Democratic nominee. Someone who can utter in plain English an unambiguous, unequivocal sentence about Iraq. Well, <laughs> I put that in my Hillary file. I think the first article in that file was one, um, oh yes, years ago, ten years ago, called Hating Hillary. It was in the New Yorker. It seems that uh, Hillary says that uh, she reminds people of their mother-in-law or something. Uh, most people, I think, uh, see Hillary as, uh, well, let's face it, perhaps she is smarter than most of the other politicians in Washington, and you know how irritating that can be, superiority. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear, let me talk a little bit about a woman that I think most people loved, and that was Anne Bancroft, one of my favorite, favorite actresses who died uh just this week at age 73, she was an actor's actor. She began in the theater, and in spite of her very, very remarkable looks, uh, she never became a glamour girl, you know, never a glamour puss. Even when she played Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate, uh, she played Mrs. Robinson as a truly sexual being, and I think she scared audiences, uh, her older woman's sexuality was neither comic nor pathetic. That's breaking stereotype, yes. She actually transcended that old stereotype. Uh, even when the script presented her as a jealous bitch. The joke, of course, is that uh, Anne Bancroft was 36 when she played Mrs. Robinson and Dustin Hoffman was 30. 
that's when the film was made many years ago. Uh, that era in Hollywood, well, they they really couldn't deal with a generation divide. Uh, Harold and Maude was definitely fantasy, definitely uh, a comic turn. We weren't supposed to take that seriously. Annie Bancroft was irritated uh, by the notoriety of that role. Uh, one of so very many... Uh, Mrs. Robinson seducing a college graduate. Let's face it, he was over 21. <laughs> and it was a portent of things to come, older women and younger men, you know. But the movie was technically pretty misogynist. Um, I found it extremely offensive, but nobody seemed to uh, feel the same way, you know. Um, it was the times, and uh, sexual freedom was supposed to be a good thing. Uh, we didn't know what the freedom was for. Uh, anyway, Bancroft was terrific in the role, and that's because she's always authentic. Uh, she played a woman without hope, and she did it uh, with a lot of angst. Uh, she was also a terrific stage actress, her... Uh, uh, role as Helen Keller's mentor and teacher was the one that knocked me out the first time I saw that uh, great method actress. I think I remember her best. For some reason, I, I loved best that role she played as the bibliophile in 84 Charing Cross Road. It's a very quiet picture, except for the scenes when <laughs> she she breaks the mold and, and uh, goes to protests in the 60s. Uh, that's the movie in which um, she plays a mid-20th century writer working for a pittance in her little apartment in New York. And bit by bit, she buys English literature from an arcane bookstore in London. The bookstore is located at 84 Charing Cross Road. That's the title of the film. And I, I think they'll be running it on cable television, but I'm sure you can get the DVD um, Anthony Hopkins is the London bookseller. He becomes her pen pal. And during the years after World War II, uh, she's able to send him and the other people who work at the bookstore a few treats, you know, the sort of food that they can't get, uh, what with the rationing. Stockings, chocolate, that sort of thing. It's the kind of movie that I find myself watching as a meditation kind of reflection on what real life is all about. Uh, oh, yes, Sex in the City is supposed to be all about New York, but I think that the life that we see in 84 Charing Cross Road is closer to the life of a writer <laughs> in, in a tiny apartment in New York, yes. Uh, it may be that today um, there's a little bit more money to spend and $400 shoes to buy. I remember in 84 Charing Cross Road, the price of these books, you know, just a dollar or dollar or two, uh, just made me want to weep. Um, but the movie's all about the ways in which, oh, a book or just a letter can be almost as real uh, as a lover. Judy Dench has a small role as Anthony Hopkins' wife and even the minor characters are fully formed, the people who work in the bookstore um, with what would be considered today limited lives. Uh, Annie Bancroft, in her time, 
won, let's see, I think unlike any other actor, she won all three of the big awards, the Oscar, the Emmy, and the Tony. She was a Renaissance woman. And uh, unlike Catherine Hepburn and so many others, um, she was not a drama queen. <laughs> she was she was cool. She was married to one man uh, since 1964. Mel Brooks, of all people. <laughs> Forty years. One marriage. She is one of those rare theater folk who never became a commodity, who always remained an artist. Uh, look for 84 Charing Cross Road on DVD if you get a chance. Skip the turning point. Lately, yes, uh, lately I use the TV the way I used to read the I Ching. You know, I just let it fall open to a page. I flipped on the television to see what the fates have to tell me. Last night I clicked on HBO and it was that scene in Angels in America. It was the second half of Perestroika, the scene in which Pryor and Belize attend the funeral of a gay friend, a glitter queen. And Belize says, trailing sequins and glitter, he came into this world and trailing sequins and glitter, he departed. <laughs> His friend says the 20 Sicilian mourners may have been a bit much. Pryor insists that the funeral is a bad imitation of what really important people do in real life. That is, the people that are taken seriously in the world, he means celebrities. I wondered about the portent there. Do we matter, those of us, you know, in the trenches, those of us without money or influence, uh, those of us who arrive in the world uh, sometimes all dressed up, but always with nowhere to go. <laughs> I think we matter. I think more than the so-called celebrities. We're the tapestry of our times, the spirit of the age. The gay community, as Tony Kushner reveals it in his play, Angels in America, uh, that is the zeitgeist, spirit of the age. If love survives anywhere, it's there. It's outside our mainstream culture. Outside, uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson's Never Never Land. It's among the gays and the lesbians and the transsexuals and even among women. We have a gay pride weekend coming up soon. Uh, that's going to be fun. Anyway, uh, yes, it's to be found among ordinary heterosexual women like me who want to live without the old rules, without the cruel rules of dominance and submission the ones that spoiled our lives and our relationships. Uh, now, I had brought with me today a whole bunch of essays by my friend Carolyn Gage, and uh, I think I'm going to save them for next time because I caught the funniest thing. Air America uses Al Franken, the comedian. They use him every morning from 9 to 12, I think. It's on AM 960. And what they've done is move the show let's see they take it they uh, edit out one hour and put it on the Sundance channel at 11:30 at night and because I'm a television addict now uh <laughs> I've I've become accustomed to watching Al at 11:30 I haven't watched a late night talk show since Jack Parr anyway this week uh Al Franken had on an actor and he Al played a Christian televangelist, and he invited uh, the actor to play 
uh, a Native American, and they discuss creation myths. And <laughs> the Native American uh, tells the televangelist a lovely story about the earth having been formed when a little coot spit out some mud and Grandmother Turtle kindly offered her back and the coot covered her back with mud and that was the earth. And the televangelist starts screaming that that's a lovely parable or story or fairy tale, you know, but that he, the televangelist, um, has the facts right here in Genesis. <laughs> and I don't know, the show, it was about it was about a 10-minute spot and it was awfully funny. But it occurred to me watching it that for masses of uh, people, at least here in our country, people called evangelicals or Christian uh, fundamentalists, the whole notion of a creation myth that is just a story, a fairy tale or a myth, um, is foreign. Uh, I remember having a little trouble, uh, to be honest. I took creation myths into my classroom many, many years ago. And some Christian children um, were upset, they were disturbed, and they didn't like the idea that uh, these myths were not uh, what they had been taught. And I had to explain that uh, men and women had been making up creation myths since the beginning of time, certainly long before um, uh, Yahweh or the birth of Christ. Uh, my favorite book, was one called The Origin of Life and Death, The African Creation Myths. I took these in because when the students found out that uh, their own heritage, their African heritage, contained these uh, creation myths, uh, parodies, well, they're sort of like Genesis, then they decided it was interesting because their myths or stories predated the ones that they thought thought of as European one of their favorites was one about the tree of life. Uh, oh, the one called The Word is my most favorite. Uh, uh, I'll read you just a little bit of it. Uh, it's uh, from the Yoruba tribe. Let's see. The sky, the word it's called. The sky was large, white, and very clear. It was empty. There were no stars and no moon. Only a tree stood in the air, and there was wind. This tree fed on the atmosphere. Ants lived on it. Wind, tree ants, and atmosphere were controlled by the power of the word. But the word was not something that could be seen. The word was a force that enabled one thing to create another. That was their their favorite um, all about got us into symbolism and finally into metaphor I don't know uh, when a child in those days asked me if I believed in God I would say I wasn't sure about God but I certainly believed in metaphor so that would get us into uh, a study of what a metaphor meant uh, in my uh, studies I found the earliest known creation myth it's a fragment from ancient Sumer. It, of course, uh, comes, uh, yes, the town, where is it? Ur, U-R, the original city of Ur. That's over there in Mesopotamia, in that country that we've decided, we've decided to turn into it, 
(laughs) democracy like our own or something. Talk about arrogance to go to Mesopotamia and tell them how to live. Anyway, that fragment from ancient Sumer is about a sea goddess, uh, Numu, N-A-M-M-U. She is said to have been responsible for creating the universe by giving birth to heaven and earth. Always, when we go back, we find a uh, a female image. Uh, that's not to be superior. It's simply, uh, you know, that's the easiest route, right? Um, the womb, the word. Here's a charming one. Uh, it's called The Forbidden Fruit. It's from the Congo, what is now Zaire. Uh, God created the first human being with the help of the moon. He needed the body out of clay. Then he covered it with skin. At the end, he poured blood into it. And he called the first man Matasi. Then he whispered into his ear, telling him to beget many children. But to impress upon them the following rule. From all trees you may eat, but not from the Tahu tree. Ratasi had many children, and he made them obey the rule. When he became old, he retired to heaven. His children obeyed the rule, and when they grew old, they too retired to heaven. But one day, a pregnant woman was seized with an irresistible desire to eat the fruit of the Tahu tree. She asked her husband to break some for her, but he refused. Then she persisted, and the husband gave way. He crept into the forest at night, picked the tahu fruit, peeled it, and hid the peel in the bush. But the moon had seen him, and she, the moon, told God what she had seen. God was so angry that he sent death as a punishment to men. Yes, indeed, always we have Human psychology, human archetypes. These are what we call gods and demigods. Uh, heroes, warriors, that sort of thing. But now we are living in the 21st century. And we don't need to believe that nonsense anymore. <laughs> we know that the, the king thing is old hat. And we know that the people who rule the world put their pants on one leg at a time and are not just as foolish as the rest of us. But in our day and time, they seem to be (laughs) remarkably deficient. Uh, I'm not sure. Bob Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, the young one, yes, back in the 60s, he used to come visit the students at my school, and he would tell them that he was terribly worried because the best citizens, the best people in our country, in our culture did not go into politics. They were ashamed to be in politics. They thought of politicians as deceptive, as bad people. Uh, The thing is that, as Molly Ivan says, uh, (laughs) she says, when it comes to voting, we're accustomed to discerning the fine hair's breadth worth of difference that it makes, that it, that makes one hopeless dipstick slightly less awful than the next. But it does raise the question, why bother? Well, it's just that your life is at stake. 
Right. Uh, she further says here, politics is not a picture on a wall or a television sitcom that you can disp- decide you don't much care for. The fact is uh, that all life is political life now, and every one of us has got to pay attention 24-7. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning to talk a little bit about KPFA and its its doings. Uh, that's at 8.20 Thursday morning. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, yes. go as easy as you can. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Lucy Tondreau, Haitian author and activist, will make her only East Bay appearance on June 18th, 7 p.m. as a benefit for the Haiti Action Committee at St. John's Community Center, El Cerrito. Ms. Tondreau has worked closely with Father Jean Juice and many grassroots organizations and will speak about what last year's coup and President Aristide's forced exile have meant for the Haitian people. St. John's is wheelchair accessible and close to Del Norte BART, 5 to $10 donation. For details about the event and exact directions, see www.haitiaction.net. Oh, man, oh, man.